Hello and welcome to Nightlight. Uh, I, I could try to impress you by making reference to the archives of our ministry, which goes back two decades. But what I would be referring to is a closet over here in the corner of my office where a bunch of stuff is stacked up. <laughs> that, that's the archives. But the reason I mention it is because in our time together today, um, I want to take you back to October 2001, one month after September 11th. And at the risk of trying to make this sound uh, more supernatural than maybe it is, I was praying about the direction I was supposed to go for this message because, like I've told you, week after, or month after month, I wish it was week after week, there's so much to cover and, and, and there's never enough time. And so I pray every month that what is communicated is what is meant to be communicated by the Holy Spirit. And so I was praying for that direction. And uh, like I said, at the risk of maybe trying to make it sound more supernatural than it really is, I just felt very strongly directed to the archives, which means I was digging through the closet. And uh, I was directed to a message that was delivered in, in London uh, in October of 2001. And I knew when I saw it that it was supposed to be uh, sent out in, in this this month uh, as your nightlight message. So rather than talk about it, I want you to hear it. And as always, when we do these live recordings, if there's any time at the end, I'll come back uh, and speak to you more. But uh, also, please keep in mind, when I make references in the message about uh, capitalism and communism, I'm not speaking of capitalism in its biblical pure form. I'm talking about decadent capitalism that has uh, lost its compass and become uh, an instrument of, of uh, destruction, just like communism. Just to, uh, and, uh, I think that'll be self-explanatory, but I don't want anybody to listen to what I'm going to say in the, message, in, in the message and think that I'm making some kind of a carte blanche anti-capitalist statement. Obviously, capitalism is a biblical principle because it has to do with uh, stewardship and ownership of property, etc., which I don't want to get into right now, but... Uh, at any rate, go with me into this live message, and we'll get back together if there's any time at the end. It's so wonderful to come into a service and sing about the Lord Jesus and sing songs that point me up to Him. I don't mean this to sound unkind, but lately in the last few years, the church has gotten really navel-centered. Sometimes in song services, by the end of it, I'm so aware of everybody's sense of neediness. I need to go outside to pray before I can come in and teach. But this morning I was pointed up to the king. I was pointed straight up where my strength is, where my life is. I'm grateful for that. I don't mean that to sound unkind to other other gatherings. I know we all do the best we can in music. There's many different tastes in music. It's not a matter of the taste of the music. It's a matter of the focus. And I'm so grateful it wasn't focused on me this morning. It's like drinking out of an empty well, isn't it? When you focus on yourself. But when you look up at Jesus, never-ending life. Hebrews 7 says he he, he has the power of an ending life, the power of unending life. We're going to talk about suffering this morning. Does that bless you? But we're going to talk about it from the perspective of a power, the power of an endless life. And I'll, I'll show you what I mean by that here in just a moment, but let's pray first. Precious Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, 
whose name we adore and honor in this place today. Great high priest who has passed into the heavens and stands there ministering for us, interceding for us by the power of an endless priesthood. We give you honor and glory and praise. Great Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of heaven, we worship you. We ask, Lord, that you would pour out your grace upon us this day, that you would pour out the anointing that will give us revelation and understanding, that will strengthen us in all goodness, that will expose lies so that we might be delivered of them, not shamed by them, but delivered of them, and that you would just glorify your Son, Lord, in all that we do and say here today. Lord, help me remember that I am your servant Hide me behind your cross. Uh, protect these people from Clay McLean's useless opinions. But let your word come forth in clarity. In Jesus' name we ask it, Father. Amen. If you've looked at the brochure, you've noticed that the, the topics and the, the, the issues that we seek to address in our time together these days have to do with... Issues like suffering, both mental and spiritual and emotional, physical, all kinds of suffering. And then uh, suffering as related to the power of the cross to bring healing. And then there's also the issue of the, the, the true and the false self. And then there's also the issue of entering into the rest of the Lord. Um, we're going to seek to address these one by one. Today, we are mainly going to be focusing on suffering. But for those of you who are able to be with us the entire three days, by the end of the three days, it will all hopefully coalesce into one clear message. We're trying to arrange the teaching so that it sits on its own each day for those of you who maybe can only come for one session, one day, I mean. But it all, will, it all will relate. For instance, I'll just say this jumping ahead a little. When we talk about the true self and the false self, which is a subject we'll spend a lot of time on tomorrow, I will, we, Mary and I will both be talking about suffering as it relates to the false concepts of self that cause such deep emotional and relational suffering and psychological suffering in our world. Uh, so this will all, it will all connect. But all of it under the power of the cross. Thank God we don't have to do like, uh, like the world and just talk about problems and analyze them and put them in books and then talk about them out of the books. Uh, we have a place to take our pain. We have a place to take our grief. We have a place to take our sin where we are transformed. Hey, Sam, it's good to see you, Eddie. Uh, if you'll if you'll go with me quick uh, to uh, Luke chapter twelve, that's going to be our main text this morning. I'll be mentioning a couple of other texts, and uh, I believe the Lord wants us to spend the morning in the Scriptures. There's going to be time for prayer, and the Holy Spirit knows He can interrupt us anytime He wants to, and break loose in any kind of healing He wants to do. But sometimes the Word of God itself is a great healer. Well, of course, the Word is always a great healer. But I mean, sometimes the Holy Spirit wants to just penetrate our thinking. And uh, the first point that I want to bring forth today concerning the subject of suffering, this first, this first session is entitled Legitimate Suffering. Now, I'm going to be using the phrase legitimate versus illegitimate suffering, but I'm going to be explaining what I mean by that because I don't mean that when a person is suffering, maybe they have no right to be suffering. That's not what I mean by legitimate versus illegitimate. Maybe a better term would be remedial suffering versus meaningless suffering. Uh, remedial suffering has to do, of course, with that which brings a remedy to itself. Uh, and I'll be explaining that more later. But the first thing we've got to understand about the mystery of suffering is that it is the normal state of a fallen planet. We who are blessed to live 
under the grace of God in the West. In other words, we are the product of Christian influence for 1,800 years. Great sorrow, the Bible says, is multiplied to those who go after false gods because evil spirits love to hurt and torment people. So obviously, where people worship demons, <clears throat> there is terrible suffering and evil. Uh, where people have honored and feared the Lord, that is where the kingdom of God comes. Now, I just mentioned in our introduction together that Christ is the, the great high priest who ministers the power of an endless life. And... Uh, when I think of the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, which basically means everything, if you physicists, forgive my shoddy definition, but I'm going to give you a quick definition. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is that everything will, will, will slow down and disintegrate unless it has input from another source. The second law of thermodynamics is the law of the physical universe. It uh, is in diametric opposition to the fantasy of macroevolution. The two cannot possibly coexist. The only way anything can become better is if something greater than it introduces into it betterness. I mean, to make it simple, a ditch can't dig itself. It has to have something smarter than a ditch digging it. Right? And... Uh, the disintegration of, of creation, based on all we know from the law of thermodynamics, the second law of therm, and it's a law, it's not a theory, is that everything should disintegrate. Everything should be falling apart. Everything should be slowing down. Everything should be dying. But Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that everything is held together by the command of Jesus Christ. He commands it to live, he commands it to be, and he commands it to continue. And periodically in history, we have moments where the Holy Spirit supernaturally breaks through and re-injects -in life into a disintegrating system. And the basic, the basic Christian name we have for that is what? Revival, where the Holy Spirit just breaks in and sets life in motion and reinvigorates a civilization with reality and truth. We who are the, the product of 2,000 years of Christian Western civilization have therefore been able to benefit greatly from that reality. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that prayer, wherever it is prayed, even in minimal sincerity, brings a grace and a revelation of reality that can overcome disease, overcome poverty, overcome cruelty, overcome all kinds of things. And in many, many ways, historically, the world seems to be so much better. Yet, more people have been murdered in cold blood in the 20th century than in all previous centuries put together. So it's very difficult for the materialist to know how to cope with history. That's why usually he he's, uh, tends to stay in only one line of thinking. But people who have to deal with real life every day and don't live in an ivory tower of pseudo-intellectualism know that there is both suffering which seems normal to some people and an interruption to other people, depending on how safe our childhood has been and how safe our life has been. But then there's also this other infusion of life. Now, we have all kind of muddled thinking about this. People from third world countries where there has not been the grace and the pleasure of goodness that we've enjoyed in, in, in the West are not surprised by suffering. Suffering to them is not a, an anomaly, it's the norm. And uh, where grace and goodness come, they are so grateful. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and they are so grateful for the mercy and grace of God that comes to them through the gospel 
They embrace it. There, there's a, simplic, a simplicity in their childlikeness that causes them to have such a gratitude toward God. Uh, they'll walk for hours to sit and listen to the Word of God for days. Where we in the West, who have been the great recipients of the blessings of Christendom, tend to feel that we've been put upon if uh, gas prices get too high or if the preacher preaches too long or if we have to stand in line too long at McDonald's. Now, <clears throat> so we tend to think of suffering as an intrusion. We may philosophically understand the reality of suffering. We may even theologically understand it. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. We live in a fallen world. And we can say that very uh, impassionately until it happens to us, until something reaches us. <clears throat> Now, Job tells us in Job chapter 5, I think about verse 7, that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. What does that mean? Man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. Well, obviously, Job is referring to the fact that there's something about fallenness <clears throat> that has become the norm for mankind. Trouble is the norm. Oswald Chambers said it like this. He said, the basis of life is tragic. And as soon as we understand that, we, are not, we will not be overwhelmed by it, but can begin to then bring it into the light of God's grace where that tragedy can be transformed. J.R.R. Tolkien coined a phrase that I love. He, called, he, he spoke of a eucatastrophe. A eucatastrophe. What is a eucatastrophe? It's a catastrophe that brings about a wonderful goodness that could not have happened had the catastrophe not occurred that produced the good thing. Did, did you get that? What is the greatest eucatastrophe in history? The cross. The cross, <clears throat> if I was to ask you, what's the worst thing that ever happened to mankind, you would say, well, we crucified the Son of God. As a Christian, that's what you would say. And if I was to ask you, what's the best thing that ever happened to mankind, if you think about it logically, you would have the same answer. The crucifixion of the Son of God is the worst thing that ever happened in the universe. <clears throat> the crucifixion of the Son of God is the best thing that ever happened in the universe. That's a eucatastrophe. Now, everything in the life of a believer is a potential eucatastrophe. Everything that has ever come your way because of Calvary, the great eucatastrophe, once you bring anything in your life to that great eucatastrophe, that thing in your life also can be transformed into a eucatastrophe. And that's true for the whole world. But... Before we move into that area of understanding, which is going to be our closing time together, the power of the cross to transform evil, I want you to go with me, as I've already said, to, to Luke chapter 12. And I want to, I want to, <clears throat> let's talk, let's let Jesus talk to us for a minute about the whole issue of evil and suffering. In chapter 12 <clears throat> of Luke, beginning about verse 54, it says, He said to the people, When you see a cloud rise out of the west, straightway you say there's coming a shower. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be heat, and it comes to pass. <clears throat> you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not discern the signs of the times? Yea, and why even of yourselves judge ye not what is right? He's saying, you know what is right. Now the Lord Jesus is saying to these people, you have within you an awareness of what is true and right. You may hide from it, you may resist it, but it is given to you to know. John chapter 1 says, Jesus is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Every human being <clears throat> who's ever been born has a knowledge on the inside of reality and truth if he will respond to it. Our sin before God is not ignorance, but willful ignorance. Romans chapter 1 says, we suppress the truth because we love unrighteousness. It doesn't say we don't know the truth. It says we suppress it 
That's true of uh, a Wall Street banker. It's true of a, a British parliamentarian. It's true of a native in a third world country. All of us know. It's not what we don't know that we're judged for. It's what we do know and resist. Verse 58, he says, When you go with your adversary to the magistrate, as you're on the way, give diligence that you may be delivered from him, <clears throat> lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and the officer cast you into prison. I tell you, you will not depart from there till you have paid the very last mite. What's he talking about here? <clears throat> He's talking about the natural tendency of, of, of things in, on the human level to disintegrate. He's taught, he says, you see the wind, you understand how the earth operates, you see the natural flow of life. Then, he, then he, he takes it to human relationships. He says, you see how humans interact with each other. You see where you have an adversary, where you have one who is seeking to bring uh, trouble or pressure against you. Jesus is speaking strictly on the human level when he says, do whatever you can to avoid conflict. And that's basically what he's saying. He's not saying be a coward. But he's saying, it's wise for you, since you live in such a fallen situation, do whatever you, you, you can to avoid purposeful confrontation that can bring disintegration, trouble, and evil. Well, as a result of this statement in verse, forget chapter 13, we're still in the same story. Verse 1 says, there were present at that moment some that told him of Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus makes this statement and some guys in the crowd are upset over a political situation that has occurred that cost some Galileans their lives. We don't know the background of it, but basically the implication is they were in some kind of worship service. They were somehow, uh, they somehow came in conflict with the powers that be and Pilate sends men in who cut their throats and mingle their throats' blood with the sacrifices. A horrible, blasphemous thing. And they're upset about it. And they want Jesus to be upset about it. Have you ever been upset about something and wanted Jesus to be upset about it too? Sure you have. And Jesus says, in verse 2, Jesus answered and said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered these things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, I know that helped them. I guarantee you, they left there feeling a lot calmer and a lot more peaceful. They'd gotten an answer, <laughs> right? No, not at all. In fact, Jesus goes even further. He says, hey, not only that, not only these Galileans who were murdered by Pilate, but he says, let me tell you this one. In verse 4, he says, what about those 18 upon whom the tower fell? Now, that's a very significant verse for us right now. What about those 18 upon whom the tower fell? Do you suppose that they were worse sinners than all the other p people who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. This whole stream of thought, and we don't have time today to cover it like I would like to. We have a, six hours of it back there on the tape table called The Mystery of Evil and Suffering. But Jesus spends an entire chapter here unfolding for these people that suffering for them, because of the planet we live on, because of the rebellion of man, because of the absence of God's a welcomed presence because all God is able to give fallen man is re, is a, a prevenient grace. You know, he, he lets it rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, he pours out his blessing of goodness and air and sunshine and life and water and food and human affection. He, God pours out as much goodness as he's able to do upon a generation of people who are rebelling against his kingdom. And so Jesus says, listen, do you think when that tower fell on those people, it was because they were evil, especially evil, so, so God made a tower fall on them? No. He says, unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Does he mean everybody's going to have a tower fall on them? No. He's saying, you're all going to perish. Everybody's terminal. Everybody has a terminal case of sin. We are all terminal. Now... <sighs> 
Of course, if you take the whole counsel of Scripture, Jesus is not saying that and leaving it there. Thanks be to God. What he's saying is, if you are not able to respond to me, you will all likewise perish. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, he says in John chapter 10. I have come that you might have life. See, there's that power of an endless life again. Christ who, who comes to, to, to minister the power of an endless life. How does he overcome the second law of thermodynamics, which is the law of disintegration, the law of death? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2 says, There's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the power of life in Christ has delivered us from the power of sin and death. This infusion of life delivers me from, from entropy, from disintegration, from that which is just normal, natural, everyday stuff. But my point at the beginning is a point that I really want us to dwell on. And I don't mean to bore you with it, but I want to make sure you're thinking about it clearly. We live, as I've said already, in a culture that has been so greatly blessed that for the most part, we don't know what real suffering is like so much of the world does. We don't know real hunger. We don't know what it is to sleep on a concrete floor uh, unless you've been giving your wife too much trouble. <laughs> I got awful quiet. All the guys just <laughs> shut down. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is to know persecution. We, we, don't, we don't really know. Uh, and of course, in Great Britain, you have known what it is to, to wonder if a bomb might go off any minute at certain times in your life. But compared to the rest of the world, you've never suffered greatly. And of course, we Americans have never suffered at all. I mean, we thought the tribulation started when gas got to be over a dollar. So now that we have had, for the first time in our history, our borders penetrated by that which is normal and natural to the fallen system. All of a sudden, nobody's talking about moments of silence in America. They're talking about prayer. I always thought a moment of silence is, is really a logical thing if there's nobody up there. Is there anything more insipid than a moment of silence? Well, there's no moments of silence in America lately. It's prayer. But uh, Jesus says here that the whole system is unto death. And he has come. He has invaded it with his life. Now, that means your whole life is a, is a, is a small version of, of that large picture. Your life is appointed to death. Christ has come in and he has released his never-ending life into you. Now, one more verse to underscore the power of entropy. Romans chapter 8 verse 23 says that all creation has been subjected to vanity because of man's fallenness. That's just another verse if you want some more biblical evidences of this. I don't think you need a hundred verses on it, but Romans 8.23 is to me always an interesting verse. It says, it says that the whole creation has been made subject to vanity. The word vanity there means emptiness, fruitlessness, uselessness, hopelessness. And that's what we see in the, in the natural world. We don't see things getting better. We don't see species increasing in uh, ability or, or complexity. We don't see that anywhere except in the fantasy world of uh, materialism. It's what some authors have called an, a grown-up's fairy tale, uh, believed by supposedly educated people. So suffering is reality. And apart from Christ, it is a hopeless reality. Everything just disintegrates. Now, remedial suffering, suffering that, that has a purpose in it, that a suffering that has hope in it, is that suffering that God in His mercy allows. People say, why does God let this happen? Why does God let that happen? And I want to be very careful when I quote that. I don't mean to be that to be saying that mockingly. Uh, you know, let it hit me, and I probably would react in some similar ways. Oh God, why? It's a very human question. 
And yet, I, I guess the reason I love and respect Oswald Chambers so much, and I was always amazed how few British people even knew who Chambers was up until a few years ago. Um, uh, Oswald Chambers did not teach what he taught in the ivory towers of some church building somewhere. But he taught it in the bloody battlefields of World War I. And as he held young men who were dying and as he daily wrote letters home to tell parents that their son had died in battle, uh, that's when he came forth with some of these tremendous insights that we all draw so much help from. And uh, Chambers says, when he says that the whole basis of life is tragic. He's saying that not to be gloomy, but the moment you understand that statement, you can then transcend it. Uh, I don't like to quote Scott Peck very much because I don't want to give people the impression that I affirm everything he writes because a lot of what he writes has become new age baloney. But in one of his early books, he made this very wise statement. He said, uh, life is difficult. I knew that would really impress you. <laughs> then the next statement, he says, as soon as you recognize that life is difficult, life ceases to be quite so difficult. And that is, in some ways, worth the price of the book because I meet people all the time who don't really grasp that. They don't grasp that life is difficult. And, of course, this goes back to, to broken parenting. See, part of what parents are supposed to do is impart to a child such a sense of love and security and welcome so that the child not only feels secure in their love, but then the child begins to be secure in his own personhood so that he has the moral ego strength with which to withstand the difficulties of life. And good, good parenting is not the only reason we have difficulty if, if, we've, if, if we've grown up in a culture that gets too materially secure, there is almost a parallel decrease of character with an increase of security. And you see that in the scriptures. We don't have the time this morning to go into it in detail, but if you'd like to study it on your own, just study the first 16 chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. And notice how many times in, that in those chapters uh, the Lord speaks to them to remember, remember, don't forget, remember. And what is it he's telling them to remember and don't forget over and over? He's telling them not to get too secure in the land they're about to move into. He says, when you start having enough food and you start having to uh, till the soil instead of fight for the ground, if, if you start beginning to sleep at night without having to keep your sword by your side, you will begin to become secure in your own abilities and you will forget the Lord your God. Now, the, the tragic pattern of history proves that to be true in every culture. The pattern of a culture basically goes something like this. There is bondage, then there is an awakening to the potentials of freedom, which comes from the speaking of truth. Awakening to freedom motivates courage and creativity, which produces freedom and life. Freedom and life produces more creativity, which produces abundance. Abundance produces affluence. Affluence produces self-centeredness and lethargy, which then produces decadence and a filthy imagination, which then begins to disintegrate the culture until finally it goes back into bondage. I, I, I'm trying to resist the temptation at this present moment to, uh, to go off on the dangers, the, 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 the great dangers I see right now arising in world capitalism. But I will just say this, especially for the, for the benefit of those of you who, who work in a company. Uh, beware. Beware of the fact that the, the only... I used to have a professor who used to say, the only difference between capitalism and communism is they both start with C. And of course, what he was trying to say is, 
when, when capitalism reaches a certain point of power, it will simply transform its servants into slaves just as surely as communism does. And I watch it. I watch it in this city every time I'm here. I watch men at 1030 at night on their way home on the tube. Their minds are gripped by whatever the boss said as they walked out the door. And they'll barely get home in time to sleep just enough to have enough strength to go back. I mean, they are as enslaved in some ways as people in the gulag. That's all I'll say about that right now. If you want more on that, we have a tape series back there called Crisis in Western Civilization, which addresses it more in detail. But it, I'm, I'm so concerned about that for Great Britain. I, I, I'm very, I mean, you now have the fourth largest economy in the world, but at what expense? At what cost to marriages, to families, and to humanity? Just being human. And the sad thing is, I talk to people about it who are Christians, and they, they act like I've insulted them. Like, uh, why did you bring that up? We don't talk about that. We, we know it's killing us, and we... We don't know what to do about it, so, you know. And I don't, and I don't, I don't mean to just point out the problem with no answer, but uh, at least you can't, I mean, you can't find an answer if you don't point out the problem. If you do point out the problem, then you can at least begin to move toward an answer. But if you play like there's no problem, you just die from it. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Uh, let me just read this to you quickly. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Speaking of this whole issue of uh, remedial suffering, God allowing suffering in order that he might hopefully bring us to a reality, a catastrophe that becomes a eucatastrophe if God's grace is in it. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 2 says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than, than to go to the house of feasting. For... That is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to heart when they face it. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You know, uh, I can't tell you, I can't tell you what it was like in America to hear reports coming over the television the day of the tragedy that NBC, CBS, ABC, all the television networks were canceling all their comedy shows. I was so amazed because, you know, I, I really, I'm always, I'm always amazed when there's the least bit of sensitivity to reality coming out of anything related to television in America. But, uh, and BBC's not much better. But, uh, in fact, in some ways, you're worse. But I won't get on that. No, I won't. Uh, but, but the fact is, uh, the house of mourning made the house of mirth look stupid. There was, there was nothing to laugh. Nobody wanted to sit and watch uh, uh, David Letterman do his thing. Nobody wanted to hear the, the comics. And hopefully, the comics had nothing they wanted to say either. There was no comedy. And uh, I'm not in any way celebrating the suffering, but I am celebrating the intrusion of reality that slapped my culture awake, at least for a little while. For the first time since World War II, churches were full in New York. And for the first time since the 60s, talk of prayer was coming to America through the media, not just through the media, but even from the media. Even some of our news broadcasters were bursting in tears on the air and crying out to God. Uh, that's mercy. See, the Bible says, the prophet Isaiah says, when God's judgments are in the earth, the people will learn righteousness. Now, I don't believe God did what happened September 11th. My father didn't do that. Evil did that. But why does God allow these things? Why does God uh, periodically have to allow uh, these huge wake-up calls? Because affluence seems to always produce a moral coma. 
And in that moral sleep, we begin to actually invent more ways to do evil. How many of you know what the sin of Sodom was? Well, we all think we know because we use the word sodomy in reference to a certain kind of sexual misuse of people. But the word sodomy comes from the name of the city, Sodom. And Ezekiel, the prophet, tells us in Ezekiel chapter 16, about verse 45, he says, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. Abundance of food, abundance of idle time, and pride. You did not strengthen the hand of the weak, nor did you protect the widow or the orphan. I find that remarkable, but God always goes to the root. See, he doesn't snip the branches. In, in God's opinion, homosexuality and various forms of sexual deviation that we think of relate, related to Sodom, those were branches of a deeper, deeper problem. And that problem was an abundance of material possessions and security and affluence had produced a generation of people who had too much leisure time on their hands. And what did I tell you about the law of entropy, the law of thermodynamics, the law of fallenness? Uh, we tend to follow the path of least resistance down. St. Gregory said, if we do not delight in higher things, we will delight in lower things. And so the people of the ancient world, not just Sodom, by the way, this was true across the board, but Sodom had uh, achieved such a level of affluence that they not only could be perverse, but they could export it. Does that sound familiar to anything you're aware of in our present culture? America has reached such a level of affluence that we not only can be perverse, but we export it. We used to export the gospel. Great Britain used to export the gospel. Uh, it, it only took two weeks after the fall of the Berlin Wall for American pornographic companies to get their products proliferated in all the European countries. See? Now, I know this comes as, I know this won't shock you, but I have to be very careful how I say this in America because it just shocks Americans something terrible. Did you know that God's not American? God does not even stand up when they play the national anthem. God's not impressed with America as America, nor is he impressed with Great Britain as Great Britain. God's not impressed with any, any of the nations. The Bible says all the nations before him are as nothing. But he is impressed with covenant relationship. And he is always impressed with response to his mercy in that covenant and wherever that covenant is resisted and rejected, the law of entropy pours back in and disintegration begins to pour in and evil begins to pour in and sorrow and suffering and tragedy begins to pour in. And God is, the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, God does not take pleasure even in the death of the wicked, much less in the death of the righteous. God does not take pleasure in death in any form. It's the opposite of his nature. God is overflowing abundant life. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But why will God allow this? Why will God allow that? God must awaken us to our condition. Did you know there is something worse than death? And that is what happens after death when there has been no awareness of our future and we have made no preparation for it. There are some things worse than death. And so God in his mercy must allow whatever it takes to awaken us to our condition. Try to picture this. Try to living, try to picture you've lived 60, 70, 80 years uninterrupted by the tragedies of life so that you don't even know such tragedies exist. And then your life comes to an end. You've had no preparation. You've had nothing to inform you that there is a God to whom you must give account, that death is a reality, that you are headed for uh, uh, some kind of judgment at the end of your life. How would you like to live your whole life with no awareness that your life is tentative or that there is some kind of righteous judgment to whom you must give account? That, to me, would be horrifying. 
I don't enjoy the pressure and the struggles and the sense of insecurity that comes with living on this planet, but I am grateful for it because it has been what has made me aware enough to respond to the grace of God when that grace has been given. And I begin to realize even that which makes me able to respond was grace. Romans 2 says, the goodness of God is what calls me to repentance. And sometimes we in the West think that means, well, God blesses us and blesses us and makes us happy and gives us all this wonderful stuff, and that's what brings us to repentance. No, I'm not sure that's what it means. I think it means whatever brings us to repentance was good. And the goodness of God sometimes may appear to us to be God abandoning us, God not coming through for us, God not holding the tower up so it doesn't fall on people, God not stepping in and protecting the men from Pilate's blades, whatever it may be. Why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God do this? Why didn't God do that? And all such questions are understandable, and I, again, I'm not speaking that condescendingly or judgmentally. We're all guilty of it because we're all fallen and human, but the bottom line is, all such questions are spoken without any understanding of the true nature of sin, the true nature of man's condition, and the true nature of the provision made by the Lord Jesus on the cross. Once the cross comes into view, all such questions are moot, and we begin to give thanks to God for whatever he has to do to bring us to repentance. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 30 says, By the blueness of a wound, evil is cleansed away. By the blueness of a wound, evil is cleansed away. How many of you love that verse? I bet you have that verse on your wall somewhere at home, don't you? Uh, that's probably not your favorite verse. It's not my favorite verse either, but it sure is a true verse. In uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul speaks of godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly sorrow which works toward repentance. I want you to pay attention to the way that's phrased. It doesn't say that godly sorrow brings repentance. It says that godly sorrow works. That word work in Greek there means work. It means that he's, he's, it's a molding, transitional uh, work of grace going on through the sorrow. The sorrow itself is not God's goal. Uh, Lamentations chapter 3 says, God never willingly afflicts the children of men. God does not like hurting people. God does not like allowing them to be hurt. He does not rejoice in suffering. He does not rejoice. Demonic things rejoice in suffering. It's demonic to rejoice in suffering or death or evil or pain. God does not rejoice in it. But what God does in his great mercy is he sees our fallen condition. He descends into it so that it might be transformed. But there's a working going on. Something you'll hear me and Mary say quite often. It takes time to redeem. Destruction can come instantly. But it takes time to redeem. And it takes, in some ways, because it takes time, it, it requires Patience, and that means, to some degree, suffering. You don't embrace it like you know, that would mean you were mentally ill. People who enjoy suffering or volunteer for it need to go to a healing conference or a psychiatrist or both. But, but when you recognize that you live in a fallen world and you embrace suffering, not for suffering's sake, but because you know that God can work good out of it, so you do it in the light of God's wisdom, then, then it becomes valid suffering. <clears throat> it, it, it becomes suffering that can produce life. Um, <clears throat> when, I was a, when I was a young kid, I was, uh, I was in great need of a lot of healing, and I didn't know it. So I was out running and outrunning my pain by doing things that would cause me more pain. Any of you can relate to that? And one night I got in the, the car of a friend of mine and he had a, he had a song, uh, he had a, a, a Christian tape in the tape player and he just shoved it in. And the whole, it was one of those special moments of grace where the Holy Spirit got my attention whether I wanted to give it to him or not. 
and the Holy Spirit invaded my mind. And he said, listen to this. Listen to this. This is my heart for you right now. It was 1976. And the song began and it said, I walked a mile with pleasure and she chattered all the way, leaving me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, never a word, said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And for a few moments in that car, I'll, I'll, I remember this like it was yesterday. It was over 20 years ago, 25 years ago. The Holy Spirit gently spoke to my heart and he said, if you love me and if you belong to me, and you do, you must trust me through the sorrows that you must face. And I knew that moment that there were things in my life that would be healed, but they would not only not be healed without sorrow, sorrow was a necessary ingredient. As we bring this session to a close, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf is looking in the face of one of the hobbits who has just come through a terrible, terrible time. And uh, one of the other hobbits says, will he live? And Gandalf said, oh yes, he'll, he'll live. And the sorrow he has faced will not darken his heart. It will teach him wisdom. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us this morning who have come through sorrow or we are facing sorrow or we are going to face sorrow. That means everybody in the room. Because we live in a fallen planet. We live in a planet in rebellion against you and sometimes even in our Christian life, we in our selfishness and foolishness go back and identify with that rebellion rather than with you. And sometimes we are hit by sorrow and suffering even when we are not rebelling. Lord, you've taught us clearly it's a, it's a, it's a wrong way to think that says if you do well, you won't suffer. And if you do wrong, you will suffer. Because sometimes we see the evil prosper and we see the righteous suffer. And so we pray, Father, that wherever we are in our life with you, whether we're going through our own personal struggles of suffering or whether we are suffering because we love another who is suffering or whether we are suffering because we are concerned for the brokenness of the world or whether we are suffering because uh, we are being mistreated for righteousness' sake. We ask, Father, whatever the cause of our suffering, whether it's physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, that you would help us remember this is the normal condition of the planet. We should not be surprised by suffering. But what we should be grateful for and, and, and elated over is that in your mercy you saw far ahead before we were even born what we were headed for and made preparation for our redemption through it. In Jesus' name we thank you. Brian Duncan did a song a few years ago that said, Blessed are the tears that flow, that clean the windows of the soul. And David said, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I've kept your word. And there are many, many, many other scriptures we could cite that talk about the fact that without the grace of suffering, we go on into an, a callous, shallow, selfish emptiness that makes life unlivable. The constant party, the never-ending uh, sense of pleasure, search for pleasure, indulging in pleasure, that has been uh, our culture for the last X number of years, especially the last 15 years or so, has produced the most empty frustrating, unfulfilling, lonely, and addicted and compulsive and directionless and shallow 
uh, culture, I think, that has ever existed on this planet. Unless I know that's too large a statement, but certainly uh, in in my lifetime, my parents' lifetime, my grandparents' lifetime, uh, there's been nothing to equal the level of debauchery and emptiness and confusion and, and meaninglessness that has become this culture. And God, in his mercy, shakes that kind of culture out of its self-destructive self-indulgence by uh, suffering. Now, how much suffering is it going to take? I don't know. I mean, I don't know whether your suffering is uh, born of self-centeredness or born of self-pity or born of deprivation of self-indulgence or born of brokenheartedness because you weep over what God weeps, because you love what God loves and hate what God hates. I hope it's the last one. And uh, certainly I'm not sitting in judgment of anybody. I'm aware of where my suffering is caused by my own selfishness and where my suffering is caused by loving what God loves and therefore grieving over what God grieves over. And if you'll remember... Uh, in the book of Amos, I think about chapter 6. You read the whole book of Amos, you'll find it. But God says there, through Amos, he says, you build your houses and you've got your summer homes and your winter homes and your mountain homes and your beach homes. And uh, you celebrate and you sing your songs and you go to your festivals. But no one weeps for the desolation of, of my inheritance. Uh, you know, this is a time of weeping. It should be. This is a time of of intercessory travail and sorrow and crying out before God and lamenting the condition of this culture. See, one of the one of the things that that marks us as spiritually uh, deaf and dumb is that things that should strike us to the heart don't bother us. And if someone points them out, we're irritated by them pointing those things out. Um, You know, if, if we were all spiritually where we need to be, we would be the most unstable people in the room. While everybody else is just carrying on like the the Titanic is never going to sink, those in touch with reality see the iceberg and respond in sanity. They they respond sanely, is what I'm saying. Uh, the, The sane people would be acting crazy in the eyes of the insane people. Am I making any sense? There's a time to weep. There's a time to tear your heart, not your garments, to cry out to God. Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 3. Sound the alarm. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Call a solemn assembly. Tell the bride and the bridegroom not to go into their chamber. I mean, you don't interrupt a honeymoon normally. But in chapter 2 of Joel, the the implication is this is of such a serious nature. Cry out. I'll tell you, when the Holy Spirit called us to gather for a a convocation back in April of last year, uh, I, I called it, and many of you made sacrificial efforts to, to come. I know some people came all the way across the United States, all the way from California, uh, at least one godly gentleman made that effort. And I'll be honest with you, I'm ashamed that they had to make such a long trip for what was really a, a very poor demonstration of the purpose we gathered there for. And I, I take full blame for that. I mean, maybe I'm the one who, who 
should have been less formal and just said, look, you know, this is a desperate thing. We, we need to cry out to God. But to be honest, I, I found that most people did not know how to pray. They did not know how to do uh, that kind of intercession. They didn't know how to be in a solemn assembly. Rather than be in the banquet hall that we were in and have the stage and the sound system and all of that, I think it would have been much better more profitable spiritually if when everybody arrived we had just gathered in a big circle and I I had I just said look I have no instructions just cry out just get on your knees and cry out to God cry out to God and confess the sins of this nation and confess your own sins and repent and let's just let's just see what the Holy Spirit wants to do with us and I'll tell you uh if God gives me the opportunity to gather ever again in that kind of setting, uh, that's probably what, what we'll do. And for those of you that wouldn't know how to respond in that atmosphere, the, the best thing to do, see, is to be in the atmosphere. That's how you learn. Uh, you learn to pray by praying. You learn to travail by being in, a, in an atmosphere of travail. But, we're so preoccupied with appearances and uh, putting on a good show and uh, not boring people who are used to being entertained that uh, we, we, we shrink back from the very thing that we're called to do. Right now, I'm telling you folks, this is a time of crying out. Remember that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The weeping is not for weeping's sake. It's for breaking through unto deliverance and healing. So God bless you. Thank you for listening. Lord willing, I'll talk to you next time.